Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. My name is Garth McKenzie. I've been trading since the age of 16. I headed up the retail derivatives desk for a large stockbroking firm in South Africa from 2003 until 2009. After that, I left the corporate world and I started traderscorner.co.za, an online service that caters to DIY traders providing analysis and trader education. I also ran the Traders Corner TV show on Business Day TV for over 10 years from 2009 to 2019. I've recently relocated to the UK and I trade both the South African and the offshore markets. Through this series, we hope to connect traders with other traders across the globe to share information, tips, and general advice on derivatives trading. The podcast series is brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. On to today's episode. Joining me on today's podcast is Dr. David Paul, a very accomplished trader who's been trading the market since the early 1980s. Uh, I first met David in 2006 when I did his bootcamp trading course in Johannesburg in South Africa, and uh, I did it again a year later. And I must say that that course uh, and the, the introduction to David was a really significant moment in my career as a trader. It, it elevated me to another level, and the, the lessons that David taught me on that bootcamp were incredible and have really stood me in good stead in the years since then. So it's wonderful to have you on uh, the podcast with me today, David. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and to tell us a little bit about your trading career um, and and the, the stories that you've got to share with us, having been in the market for, for such a very long time, certainly a lot longer than me. I, I think I was in nappies around about the time that you started trading <laughs> yeah. in the early 1980s. Um, so if we can get started, I mean, when did, when, when did you start? We know it's the early 1980s. And what got you into uh, trading from what you were doing before that? Because I know you weren't always a trader uh, right from the beginning of your career, were you? Yes. Well, firstly, Garth, uh, ladies and gentlemen listening, it's a great pleasure to be here. Great honor to be here. Uh, yes, Garth, I, I've, I've got a, a PhD in mathematics uh, and uh, my first degree is in uh, mechanical engineering. I was working for an Anglo company and uh, we were out in Lepertsflay, west of Johannesburg. Uh, and uh, I was put into an office with an old fellow. Uh, he was also a metallurgist and Every day, he would, in fact, hand chart about 30 companies that he was following on the JSE. And uh, it took me a long time to work out what he was doing. Uh, and I arrived there in April 1981. I went to South Africa to play rugby, believe it or not. And uh, uh, I saved up some money. And uh, I put on my first trade in uh, October 1982. It was a trade on South African breweries. And it was a winning trade. And they say, if your dad takes you fishing and you catch a fish the first morning, you fish for the rest of your life. And that's what's happened to me. So I worked at uh, that company uh, until April 1988. And in April 1988, I cut the corporate umbilical cord and I've been trading on my own ever since. Uh, I think about 10 years into that journey, uh, Garth, I was at an investment meeting one night in Rustenburg. And I think it was the mine manager of Impala Platinum. Certainly, if it wasn't the mine manager, it was a senior management chappie at uh, Impala that was taking the meeting. 
and it was at the golf club in Rustenburg. Anyway, this fellow pitched up and he had laryngitis and he couldn't speak. And uh, the guy, the stockbroker that was arranging the meeting asked me to come and uh, just stand up and talk. Uh, so I talked about how to become consistent in the stock market, which is a hobby horse of mine. And uh, I was asked by that same stockbroker to go into his office and coach his traders in how to become inconsistent because they were making heaps of money and giving it all back again. Uh, and that led uh, to a career in, uh, or second career, should I say, of uh, doing workshops uh, for traders. And I, I presented uh, uh, that uh, trading workshop, which was a three-day workshop uh, to banks and financial institutions all over the world. Uh, and uh, 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 over the last few years, I've stepped back from that a little bit, and uh, I've still got—I still trade full time, but I, I also am uh, the uh, sort of front man for the Vector Vest product in the UK and in South Africa. So that's right. what I've been doing. Yeah, that's very very interesting. You mentioned that um, your first trade in SAB Miller was a winner. Uh, what well, mm. wasn't SAB Miller at that stage? It would have been S South African breweries. Breweries, yeah. Um, and uh, and and sometimes they say that if your first trade is a winner, that can also be a curse because it you make it seem too easy. And uh, often early start out traders then uh, get very overconfident and can quite quickly be humbled by the market. So, what were your first years like? I mean, obviously you mentioned that you started in October 1982, and then by 1988 you were ready to cut the umbilical cord of the corporate world and start trading for yourself uh, for a living and, and have never stopped doing that. So that's a six-year period um, before you, you know, from when you started trading to when you took it on full-time. What were those first years like as a trader? Were you, what was your performance like during that time? Well, the first two years were wonderful. I just couldn't put a foot wrong. Uh, I, I certainly had a mentor in that old fellow who'd been trading all his life. Uh, he was making decisions based on uh, technical analysis, uh, and he had a battered copy of uh, technical analysis of Stocks and Trends by Edwards and McGee on his desk, and I and took all that aboard. The first few years were great, and then in 2004, I, uh, sorry, 2004, 1984, I had my first setback, and I, I fell in love with the share, and it just kept going down and down and down, and I gave a great deal back. And I had to sit down and have a great deal of soul searching to make sure that that uh, never happened uh, again. Uh, stop losses can be a pain, uh, but they do uh, help you get out of uh, really uh, bad, bad trades. That's for sure. Frequently, a stop loss will get you out at exactly where you should be buying in. But every now and then, you have a standoff in your hands. And every now and then, you have a... Uh, Sassel, I suppose, on your hands. Uh, uh, across here in the UK, my father had Marconi and uh, I managed to sell it. Uh, it fell from 17 pounds to nine pence. Uh, so um, uh, in 2004, I gave a great deal back and I had to sit and think a very long time to make sure that that never happened again. And I think about 1984, that's when I formulized uh, my uh, fairly rigorous uh, method of, of position sizing of uh, making sure that when I'm wrong, I only lose a little bit. And when I'm right, I make uh, much, much more than that, which is uh, uh, what traders refer to as a positive expectancy system. And uh, I think what we're doing here, Garth, is that we're making decisions in an uncertain environment. We're, we're, we're definitely not playing chess because on the chessboard, if you beat me, you're pretty much uh, just a better player than I am or I've made mistakes. 
everything's fairly quantified, but uh, in the stock market and in many walks of life, uh, we're making decisions in an uncertain environment where uh, uh, the best, uh, the, the worst trader in the world could certainly beat us if they get a lucky break. So uh, we're making decisions in an environment where uh, the first thing we need to get right, I believe, is beliefs, some very positive beliefs about markets. Uh, we then need a process, uh, which uh, is the backbone of most trading courses. And then, of course, uh, there is luck, good luck and bad luck. And uh, that good luck and bad luck can affect the output. And that's why trades have to be managed and managed very strongly indeed, both in terms of the initial money management and then your philosophy about the trade. Are you adding to winning trades? Or are you scaling out of winning trades? Both approaches work, uh, and uh, I do my best uh, at this stage in the game to add to winning positions, to build positions. If you ever get to the Forex market, for example, I, I, I pretty much uh, think that it's the only way that you can beat that market is by actually uh, being very much bigger when you're right than you are when you're wrong. So um, uh, beliefs, some positive beliefs, uh, Three core beliefs is that money can be made in markets. I can make money in markets. And three, I deserve to make money in markets. And then our process. And then that process has to be managed because I assure you that you can have good luck or bad luck. And that, in fact, uh, details the outcome. Uh, so we're playing poker as opposed to chess. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Don't we know that all too well? <laughs> now, within what you've just said, you spoke quite a lot about risk management and uh, money management and position sizing. And I know from being an attendee on your boot camp twice that that was probably the single most uh, uh, mind-blowing thing for me to have learned as a young trader was your approach to risk management and the, the way that you just keep losses small and make sure that you execute stop losses when things are not working out. So you know, we, we learned on the boot camp when I was with you that the, you know, the classic 2% rule and that a trader should never risk more than 2% of, of their capital. I must say, I've found out throughout my trading career that I've, uh, as I've gotten older, I've actually started to want to take that 2% number down. And often I find myself risking even less than 1% nowadays. And maybe that's just me getting older and, and wiser. And perhaps my testicular fortitude is not what it once was when I was younger. <laughs> but it certainly helps me to sleep better at night, not having such aggressive risk in the market, and not, not taking too much risk. So, you know, with that in mind, what is, what is your approach to risk management? What, what Typically, what would you nowadays risk as a percentage of your capital on an individual trade? Yeah, uh, before we get to that a second, Garth, I think the most important thing, uh, the most important thing that I see at both retail and institutional level, especially at institutional level, is that people don't know how much money they're managing. Uh, so uh, I see that all the time in the banks. Youngsters are managing a, a, a sort of a, a nebulous amount of money. They haven't got a clue how much they're managing. So the first step in this, uh, ladies and gentlemen listening, is uh, to decide how much money you want to put in uh, to a trading portfolio. Not your long-term portfolio, but how much money do you want to put in there? Uh, until you know how much money is in your account, and I've thought that through, then you can't size your positions properly. And if you can't size your positions properly, ladies and gentlemen, you are gambling, not trading. And 
I suggest you go to Monte Cassino because they'll give you free beer there, Garth. Do you know that? Uh, <laughs> yes, so, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, very few people will give the broker 50,000 uh, whatever, pounds, dollars, rands. Uh, they say, well, we'll just give them 10 and we'll keep the rest in the background. And as a result, they end up having to fund their account over and over and over again. And something very funny happens when you have to refund an account, even uh, if it's if you haven't put all the money in. It's reinforcing that belief that I'm no bloody good at this. Uh, so uh, my advice, the first step is to spend a weekend thinking about how much money, how much you want to put into your uh, speculative trading account. Once you've, in fact, uh, work that out. If it's 50,000 units, then 10% uh, of that is 5,000. 1% uh, of that uh, would be 500. And I think I agree with you completely, Garth, that over the years, I've certainly become uh, no more than 1% in any one trade. Uh, and uh, I, I, I frequently deal with people here in the city of London and the Forex desk, where the risk manager, in fact, allows them to trade a third of a percent in any one trade. Uh, no more than that. So uh, over the years, I've cut back as well. Uh, the real reason for that, folks, is clusters. And if you've got a, a in a in a, any system can break down to random, and you can make a great deal of money in a random system. Uh, in other words, you're right fifty percent of the time. If you're a trend follower, those people out there, if you're a trend follower, you're not going to get a fifty percent hit rate. Okay, simple as that. If you buy breakouts, if you uh, buy moving average crosses, if you test that honestly, you'll find your hit rate is less than 50%. Now, if you've got a, a system with a hit rate of 50%, you get two bad ones in a row every four trades, a half times a half. And uh, if you do the sums, you get five bad ones in a row every 32 trades. And uh, that means that if you were to bet 20% of your loot in any one trade, you go bankrupt every 32. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. So the clusters of good luck and bad luck are real. When I talk about them on the seminar, everybody nods their head. They say, this will never happen to me. But I assure you, those clusters are real. There's two things about the clusters, Garth. One is getting through them arithmetically, and that means risking away half a percent, one percent in any, any one trade. If you have five buttons in a row and you're trading at one percent on any one trade, that means you're down five percent. Uh, can you live with that? If you can't live with that, then go right back to half a percent on any one trade. Then you're down drawdown of two and a half percent. Certainly in the city here in London, if you're down five percent, the risk manager will be close. He'll be close. He's be saying to himself, you know, have we got a, a, a loose cannon on our hands here? Uh, so uh, those clusters are hell. So the first thing about the clusters is getting through the darn things arithmetically. And of course, then the second thing about the clusters is getting through them emotionally. And the real challenge is get to the point where you can think in probabilities. And if you've got a cluster of five bad trades that you can have the discipline to put your process into practice, 
with the same enthusiasm on the sixth. And mm. the discipline to do that is quite Herculean yeah, with a capital abs H. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, those clusters that you talk about, I mean, it happens to all of us. No doubt anyone that's got a bit of experience in this trading business will know. I can say with my experience, my longest cluster of losing trades was 11 trades in a row once mm. upon a time. And, um, and certainly if I'd been risking any meaningful amount of money, that would have probably wiped me out. But fortunately, because of the, the tight risk management and the small risk that I was taking as taught by you, it meant that, that you know I was able to come back and fight back to live another day quite quickly after that. But it was no doubt very um, a debilitating experience. It was quite depressing. I did begin to wonder whether I shouldn't look for another career at that point in my life. Um, you've been around a lot longer than I have, and I've no doubt you've experienced some big clusters. Do, do you know of, you know, with the number, any the, the, the longest cluster that you've ever encountered in your trading career, cluster of losses? Well, yes. Uh, I, my, my best friend and trading partner is a big guy called Tom Hogart. And Tom and I had a, uh, a trading room called Which Way Today, right at the start of the internet, when the internet was new. We're giving real-time signals. And um, uh, this was in the indexes and the forex market. And uh, uh, we had uh, uh, together... We had uh, two weeks where we just couldn't do anything right. We still were positive for the month, but we had uh, two weeks. I think it was 11 trades in the two weeks uh, where we just couldn't get anything. Everything we put our hand to uh, just didn't work. So we had, uh, and that was a very difficult time, especially if you're doing it in public, a very difficult time indeed. But I've no doubt. I've no we, doubt. Managed, I mean, I, yeah. we managed to develop the resilience between the two of us. And uh, uh, I think we had a call on that great trading psychologist. Uh, he practices out of Tennessee, Garth. He goes under the name of Dr. Jack Daniels. So we had to consult <laughs> with him on occasions. But apart from that, we came through it okay. <laughs> I enjoy that, Mr. Doc, Dr. Jack Daniels. I'll remember that one. Um, yeah, it's it's very interesting um, what you say there about 11 clusters in a row. It seems I'm in good company because we've obviously shared the same number then. But with that in mind, I mean, I know when I've had bad uh, losing clusters, what I often do in my own trading is I actually just take some time off. I um, I'd shut up for two weeks or something, go and read a good trading book or two. Um, you recommended trading in the zone very uh, with a lot of vigor when we met. And that's mm. a, a book that I've read a number of times in my trading career. Yeah. I actually try and read it once a year just because the psychological lessons in there are so valuable. Mm -hmm. um, if you go through a, a, pay, a phase like that, a, a, a you know, losing clusters, quite a, quite a few losing clusters in a row. Do you carry on trading throughout and tr come back, or do you also tend to take a bit of a step back and just refocus the mind? Uh, no, I'm too bloody minded for that, and that's something I have to work on probably. But <laughs> I definitely scale back. I definitely scale back in terms of size, right down to that third. Uh, yeah. I add to winning positions. Uh, so. Uh, I, and uh, as the position goes my way, uh, uh, when I've made as much as I've risked, uh, I double. And then uh, as it moves again, I add another piece. So my risk-to-reward ratio, even on a four-hour Forex chart, is exceptionally good. On end-of-day stock charts, I can get up to a risk-to-reward ratio sometimes of 10 to 1 relatively easily. Uh, so uh, 
start with a very, very small position uh, and then do your best to try and build that position. Uh, and uh, it does take a great deal of testicular fortitude to do that uh, because there's a little fellow on your shoulder who'd be saying, take the money, take the money, take the money. Uh, and uh, uh, we did a study here, Tom Hogart and I, we did a study in the UK of winning trades and losing trades. And uh, as Mark Douglas says in uh, Trading in the Zone, uh, very simply, winning traders, in fact, uh, just think differently uh, from losing traders. Now, here in the UK, uh, the uh, spread betting companies, for example, have got to publish how many people are are in fact successful with them. And most of them say that 75% of people lose money uh, trading with us. And we spoke to the winners and we spoke to the losers. And there was no difference in terms of analytical ability between the winners and the losers. But the um, winners uh, thought differently. So here's my best shot at the Holy Grail, Garth. Uh, when a losing trader has a winning position, they, they quickly become pessimistic. They are scared that the market's going to take their money away and they, in fact, snap at it. When a losing trader has got a losing position, they become optimistic. They become optimistic that the damn thing's going to turn, and as we've all said to ourselves, give it another tick, give it another day. Uh, now, a winning trader, the people who, the 20% the who consistently make money, when they have a winning trade, they become optimistic. They become optimistic that the darn thing is going to run. And when they have a losing trade, they quickly become pessimistic and they leg it for cover. Mm -hmm. So my challenge to everybody listening is that in your next trade, become aware of your thoughts. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I love that uh, optimistic versus pessimistic comparison mm. that you make there. And that's something uh, you're you, absolutely right. A lot of what you're talking to here is, is you know, remaining um, even keeled, I suppose. So when you're, when, you're an, when you're in a winning trade, you don't get too exuberant about it. When you're in a losing trade, you don't get too pessimistic about it. And you kind of just see this as a process and as a, uh, as you say, a probabilities game. Some trades are going to be losers. Some trades are going to be winners. And as long as you're making more on the winners than what you're losing on the losers, and you've got a, a decent enough hit rate over time, then you're going to be a successful trader. Do you know, and I'm sure you do know, uh, more or less on a percentage basis, what percentage of your trades are winners versus losers? Uh, in the stock market, 70% are winners uh, at the minute, uh, but I'm very careful. I only trade in stocks that are uh, shares that are growing their earnings very strongly indeed and have a proven track record of growing their earnings strongly. Uh, and I have a, a 10 point, well, nine point checklist uh, that I put into practice. So uh, I, I don't trade uh, uh, without a great deal of thought. So, uh, and uh, when I tick the boxes, uh, using the VectorVest system to do the fundamentals for me uh, and a lot of the technicals for me, and then a, 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 fair, a fairly simple technical analysis, I can get that hit right up there uh, to about 70%. Uh, in the Forex market, in the stock indices market, uh, about 60%, because there there's no fundamentals to go on and you're trading purely technically. Uh, and uh, that means that uh, the clusters of bad luck are much, much, much higher 
in that particular marketplace. Uh, right. So, uh, yeah. Do my best to add uh, to um, all positions, uh, especially in swing trades. We've got many, many weeks to add to the positions. Uh, uh, but you're quite right. Uh, I'm asked by desk heads all over the world, what makes a good trader? And certainly, in my humble opinion, uh, good traders are very present people. They've got their They've got the ability not to focus on the past or focus on the future, but uh, focus as to what the market is telling them now in relation to their uh, rules. And uh, their rules should be hopefully to hold on to winners and get rid of the losers quickly. Uh, if you examine your thoughts, you'll find that your thoughts have got a great deal of momentum, just like a price chart. Uh, and it takes a great deal of work uh, and uh, work that is ongoing uh, to make sure uh, that uh, you rein in those uh, negative thoughts to allow your winners to run. But it is a process, and if, it's like doing like going to the gymnasium. If you go to the gymnasium uh, every day for 10 days, it's quite easy to build that discipline to go on the 11th day. In fact, you may not need discipline at all uh, because discipline's a funny thing that when you've got it, you don't need it. Mm. Uh, and similarly, Building really, really good habits is very important. And uh, maybe the people listening might be interested in a, a really good book on building good habits. It's called Atomic Habits by a gentleman by the name of James Clear. And I found that book uh, exceptionally useful in building uh, good habits for trading and other bits of my life. Uh, and also getting rid of really bad habits um, in trading and other bits of my life as well. So uh, an outstanding practical book by a fellow called James Clear. Uh, very That's useful. That's excellent. I'm certainly going to have a look at that. I haven't yeah. read that one myself. We're running out of time now, David. So I've got only time for one more question, if I may. Um, and it's this. If you had to give advice to somebody who's just starting out in trading, and this is the career that they're wanting to pursue, What's one piece of advice that you'd give to a startup trader looking to make a career out of trading? Define, first of all, define how much money you want to put into your trading business and manage it well. Uh, so uh, the first step is to sit down and work out how much money you can put into a speculative trading account. Uh, uh, once you've decided that, then uh, don't risk any more than 1% of that on any one single trade. Uh, then it's a matter of getting some form of process. Uh, my process is very simple. Uh, certainly in the stock market, the overall market must be rising. The industry group must be rising. The share itself should be in an existing trend. And I want to buy a pullback on falling volume. Uh, that's a Wyckoff technique, Garth. I'm very fond of old Richard Wyckoff. Uh, pullback should happen on falling volume. You can use a stochastic uh, to work out an oversold area. Uh, I think a knowledge of uh, candle patterns or bar chart patterns for that uh, entry point would be useful. As I say, don't risk any more than 1% in any one trade. And then you need to detail uh, how you're going to manage the trade. Because remember, if there wasn't bad luck or good luck, we wouldn't have to manage the trade. The darn things would do exactly what we think they're going to do, but that rarely happens. So uh, are you, in fact, going to scale out? You can make money by scaling out, or are you going to try and scale in? Scale in takes a great deal, of, as you say, of testicular fortitude. And then I think the big secret uh, and the holy grail is to develop that awareness uh, to build the habit to allow your winners to run 
and uh, to actually run very quickly from your losers. I think the error that I see most is that people don't know how much money they're managing mm -hmm. and uh, they don't size their positions properly. I see that uh, at the institutional level all the time. In fact, I did a talk to a, a company, a, a large company the other day. I spun it out over three days, uh, but I knew when I went through the door to start uh, the talk that their problem was that they didn't know how much, much money was in their account to start with. Anyway, I hope that helps. It helps a great deal, David. And it's uh, really been fascinating talking to you. The listeners to this podcast are incredibly fortunate to be able to gain the insight that you've shared with us today. So I'm incredibly grateful for you to take the time, taking half an hour out of your busy day, especially given the turmoil in the markets at the moment that we're facing. So it's a great, great appreciation that we that we have for your time today. Thank you very much. Um, and uh all the best, and you and I will no doubt be catching up for a pint at some point in London soon. I hope so, sir. I hope so. I hope so. Thank you, uh, Gareth, for having me. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here. Uh, trade well, everyone listening. Thanks very much, and you go well, David. Thanks very Cheers, much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.